Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center, connecting people to God and each other. We are currently studying verse by verse through the book of Romans. For more information, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co. In the mid-90s, the Chicago Bulls were playing in a playoff series, and their star player, Michael Jordan, some of you may have heard of him, he had the flu, but it was the playoffs, and, and Jordan was going to play. And with the flu, he ends up dropping something like 55 points in that playoff game. Well, this morning is a lot like that, because I am confident that I have a fever, and uh, I think I'm feeling a lot like Jordan right now, just pressing through with a low-grade fever, the athletic endeavor of standing in one spot and speaking. And I'm also bald, yeah, and prone to arrogance. (laughs) Not on Jordan's level. That guy's gotten ridiculous. All right. So we're going to read from Romans 15. Let's stand up together. I just say that to tell you, if I say anything super weird, just go, oh, fever. We're going to read from uh, Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. See, you have to tolerate me this morning. (laughs) And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you that that your word is alive, that your word is filled with power and with your spirit. So I pray, God, by your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear this living word. Lord, we need not ask you to bless your word. You've already blessed it, but we pray, God, bless our hearing of your word. Bless my speaking of your word. Lord, glorify yourself in this time. Give us hearts that are soft. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your spirit. Lord, I pray for myself that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. God, I even pray, you know my weakness. You know how my mind is swimming right now with this fever. I pray, God, that you would give me clarity and that your spirit would speak to your church. And so, God, we thank you, because all the glory is yours. 
These people are yours. This church is yours. Salvation is yours. So we say, Lord, make much of yourself for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Last weekend, we finished up chapter 14 in the book of Romans with, with verse 23 that said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we sort of closed last week with this idea that Paul's really getting to the heart of what it means to think like a Christian, what it means to live like a Christian, where Paul says, what doesn't proceed from faith, that's sin, is this parallel to what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where he says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And so we sort of brought chapter 14 to a close last week with this idea that God intends for our lives to magnify his glory. God is, is utmost, and, and if you've been a part of this church for, for any period of time, uh, even as we've gone through the book of Romans, you've heard this uh, mentioned periodically that God is, is most concerned with his glory. The, the, the one thing in the universe that God is concerned most with is his own glory. And now, now in some circles they would say, no, that can't be true. The thing God must be most concerned with has to be us. And so the problem with that kind of thinking is if God is most concerned with us, we become the ultimate thing. And so as Paul's been taking us through the book of Romans, he's been short, sort of showing us how, where we fit on the scale of things. You were a rebel in God's kingdom and God, because of his own concern for his glory, had wrath stored up for you. And so Paul has been bringing us through this, what it means for rebels to be reconciled to God, what it means for this God who is concerned for his glory to save people for the sake of his own name. And Paul brings us to this place where he says, live lives where you do everything for God's glory. In fact, anything that doesn't come from that saving faith with God's glory as the ultimate goal is sin. And, and, and so at the outset, while, we, while we're talking about this this morning, we need to be clear when we use language like our lives are supposed to magnify God's glory, we're supposed to do things that glorify God, it doesn't mean that in some way we can add glory to God. God is infinitely glorious regardless of what we do or do not do. We in no way add to his glory because his glory is not dependent on our actions. His glory is dependent on who he is, right? But we are told in numerous passages to glorify God, to bring him glory through our actions. So, so through our lives, we can spread the glory of God through the earth. Through our lives, we magnify the glory of God. So we don't magnify it the way a microscope magnifies something. Right? A microscope makes something that's really small look pretty big. We magnify God's glory the way a telescope magnifies something. It makes something huge visible where it wasn't before. And so our lives make God's glory, which is huge and not dependent on us, visible to the world around us. We're supposed to live lives that make God's glory visible, that spread it throughout the earth. And so, so Paul's been kind of taking us through uh, after spending 11 chapters on what is the gospel, what is the truth, what is it that God has done to save sinners, Paul's begun to tell us how we ought to live in response to that. And he's been taking us through a few things of what does it look like then to live lives like this, that put God's glory 
on display. And one of the particular ways, and we've been on this for a few weeks now, one of the particular ways that Christians can display God's glory is unity. So God's glory is directly connected to our unity as Christians. That's going to be our big idea this morning. God's glory is directly connected to our unity as Christians. And and in this passage, if you look at verses 5 through 7, Paul makes this connection for us. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Paul makes this connection between our unity as Christians and the glory of God. And now we need to remember again, we've been reminding ourselves of this the last few weeks, what particular situation Paul's speaking to in Romans 14 and now into the first half of 15. He's been dealing with a particular conflict in the Roman church. And so he's going to conclude this section that that covered all of verse 14 in the first half of of 15 uh, with our passage this morning, but he's calling again for unity for the believers in Rome. There was this division over what Paul would say are trivial matters. It had to do with eating and drinking and what kind of holy days uh, ought to be celebrated. And so Paul said there are those of strong faith, okay, and those are probably Gentile Christians whose consciences do not uh, make them feel bound to eating restrictions. Right? They don't feel like they have to just be vegetarians. They don't mind a little bacon with their breakfast. They're, they're not afraid to drink wine, that sort of thing. They, they feel the freedom to do that. Conscience is not bound, and they don't feel like any particular day is any more holy than any other day. They think every day is holy. And then there's this other group, which Paul says are people of the weaker faith, and those are, are, are Jewish Christians, not all Jewish Christians, but some Jewish Christians who for one reason or another feel bound in their conscience to observe all of those things, dietary regulations, uh, special days, all of these observances. And so there's some conflict going back and forth between the two groups, one group looking at the other and sort of uh, judging them for their weak faith and saying, come on, get with the program. Don't you know it's okay to drive a car? You don't have to drive a horse and buggy. And then the other group, they didn't really have cars. That was just to say, that's what we do, the Amish. Okay, good. So, now, on this side, though, they're looking up and saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you not keeping these restrictions that we're keeping? You're clearly less holy than we are. And so there's this conflict, and Paul's constantly calling them, stop judging each other, stop doing that. These are trivial matters. These are not issues. Uh, Paul even sides with the strong in faith. When he talks about the strong, he says, we who are strong ought to do this. So Paul sides with those who say, no, Christ has freed you from all of that. Uh, in these matters. But Paul is urging them to have unity together. And, and he sides with the strong, but he says, you can't flaunt your liberty. And so that's what we talked about last week. You who are strong cannot flaunt your liberty in such a way that would cause the weak to stumble, uh, either by judging you or by uh, violating their own conscience, which would be sin for them to do the things that you're doing if it violates their conscience. So Paul says, be sensitive to the consciences of the weak. Don't divide over these things. And and so Paul's bringing us to, there's so much at stake here in your unity. This is why he's pleading with us for a chapter and a half, 
have unity, don't divide, don't judge one another, love each other, give each other grace and freedom because there is so much at stake. Paul says no less than the glory of God is at stake. And so, like we said and we say often, if God's glory is the utmost thing in all the universe, the thing that God is most concerned with, we should probably be concerned with that also. And so if we're doing something that, that is sort of marring that or putting a wall up so people can't see God's glory, it's sh- sort of uh, turning that telescope off of God's glory onto something else, then we should be concerned about that as Christians. And Paul's very concerned about that here. So Douglas Moo, who's a, who's a New Testament scholar, says, division in the church over non-essentials diverts precious time and energy from its basic mission, the proclamation of the gospel, and the glorifying of God. And those of us who've been around church for a long time know that that happens, right? I think many of us have probably been in a church setting where some secondary issue, something that's not super important, and it becomes the thing that sort of throws everything off the rails and off track. You know, maybe it's the color of the carpet. And people, all of a sudden, people are fighting over the color of the carpet, or what kind of uh, party you should throw as a church, and things get thrown off track. And th- these are the secondary issues uh, that, that become giant issues. And so Paul urges us, don't make those things into a big deal. So in this passage, Paul's going to, to keep pushing on this idea of unity in the church and its vital importance. And so he, he gives us some, some commands in this text. And, and basically, we're going to sum this text down and do a couple things. Two commands that Paul gives to Christians, okay, particularly the church in Rome, but to us uh, through the Scripture. Two commands that Paul gives, two reasons for those commands, and two prayers in light of those commands. So, so Paul's going to give us a command, a reason for that command, and a prayer, And then he's going to give us another command, a reason for that command, and a prayer. And so we're just going to kind of look at those verses, look at those commands, and see what God would have for us this morning. So the first command is found right away in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. So Paul commands the strong, okay, last week Paul commanded the strong, don't be a stumbling block. And so Paul's going to kind of make that even more clear for us here. He commands the strong not to please themselves, but to please others. Okay, the strong are to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. And now let me just make something pretty clear here. As we use this language of strong and, and weak, you might be tempted to give yourself a pass and go, well, I guess I'm just of the weak faith. So everyone's going to need to accommodate me. That's not the idea here. The idea is never that Christians ought to stick with a weak faith. Amen? We are to grow up and mature in the Lord, to be transformed into Christ's likeness. So when we talk about strong and weak, don't give yourself a pass. This is a command for all of us. Bear with one another's failings. Don't please yourself. Please others. In other words, don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Don't disregard them for their failings. Okay, now like we needed to make clear last week, we need to make clear again, Paul does use the word failings, right? We're talking about failing, right? So, so 
Christians, with each other, we ought to bear with one another's failings. We shouldn't judge each other or dismiss each other and just write each other off. Oh, he is never going to make it. They are never going to amount to anything. They're never going to get over this thing that they're failing in, this sin. Okay? But Paul does call it failing. So we're not talking about excuse, excusing one another. Right? And so, so you've got a, a problem with, with uh, drugs. My posture towards you is supposed to be one of grace, which means I don't give up on you. I don't write you off. I constantly call you to faith and repentance and freedom in Christ. It doesn't mean I go, that's just who you are. You like meth. And who am I to judge? Right? That's not what Paul's calling us to. These are failings. So we don't affirm sin. If we don't call sin, sin, we're not actually loving our brother, are we? That's not love. And so our culture is sort of redefining that for us. You're unloving and you're hateful if you, if you say something is a sin. You not only have to, to tolerate the person and say, I disagree with you, but you have a right to live. We have to say it's not a sin, and that's not love. As a Christian, we have to profoundly understand that if we're going to be able to live in this culture. It would be profoundly hateful if someone was doing something that the Bible says will send them to hell, and then we told them it was fine. That is a hateful thing. So Paul's not calling us to excuse sin. He's calling us never to condemn each other or give up on each other. We ought to bear with one another's failings. And even in doing so, even as we call each other to repentance and faith, we are to welcome them and encourage them, not simply dismiss them and look after our own interests. I remember a time uh, back when I was associate pastor at another church and we had a young lady that would constantly come to me for advice, and, and she, we'd have these long talks where she'd be crying, and, 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 and I'd, I'd advise her on a matter, and then she'd go out and do exactly the opposite, and then she'd come back crying, oh, my life's falling apart. I did just what you said not to do, and it was terrible. And so finally I told her, here's the situation. We got two options. One, you never come to me again for advice. I don't care that I'm your pastor, never again. Or number two, I'm just going to tell you the opposite of what I think in the hopes that you'll stumble on to doing the right thing by doing the opposite. But I don't have time for this. That is, that is a good example of what Paul's saying we ought never do as Christians where you just dismiss someone out of hand. You just go, you know what, I don't have time for this. I'm done with this. That doesn't mean that every person we ought to... Uh, pour all of our time and energy into. We need to be wise stewards of our time and our energy, but our posture to them should not be one of giving up like mine was with her. And so Paul calls us to, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to not simply dismiss them and look after our own interests. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2. We need to put the interest of others above our own interests. That's, that's the general posture of a Christian. The general thinking of a Christian is, you are more important than I am. That, by the way, would help us in our marriages quite a bit. If our general posture towards our wives, men, was, you're more important than I am. And so when I feel slighted in the relationship, she's more important than I am. It helps. It really helps. Uh, it doesn't solve every problem. It's helpful. And it is the way Christians ought to think about other people. So every time we're not doing that, we are thinking in a way that is unchristian. So the wording in verse 2, though, is, is a little bit odd. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. 
This is a little bit odd. Are we really supposed to try to please others? Because Paul has already told us we should do everything for the glory of God, right? Paul just told us a couple verses ago, that which isn't of faith is sin. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, everything you do, do for the glory of God. And now Paul's saying something that sounds different, live to please other people. So are we supposed to live to please other people or are we supposed to live to please God? This becomes a dilemma for us if we think Paul's telling us to do one at the expense of the other. If we think Paul's telling us to please people in a way that doesn't please God. There's a certain way we ought to be living to please other people. Not at the expense of God. We don't please men and ignore God. We do it specifically, Paul says here, what? For his good to build him up. So we're not going to live to please men in a way that sort of enables their selfish desires. Right? We're not going to just, just, just live to do everything that would make them happy in some sort of codependent relationship. We're, we're, we're looking to please them in a way that does them spiritual good for their upbuilding. So sometimes, we know this as parents, sometimes living for the good of our kids means doing something that doesn't even make them very happy. Doesn't it? When you're at the grocery store and they pick up that one pound Hershey bar and they go, you know what make me so happy? If you would buy this and I could eat it in the car on the way home, the whole pound. That would please me. Well, living for the good and the ultimate joy of our children means we probably don't give them diabetes in one shot, in one car ride. Uh, and so, so living to please somebody else doesn't always mean we're making them thrilled. It certainly doesn't mean that we're feeding into all their selfish desires. This is something that's done for their spiritual good. We are in relationships with one another to do them some spiritual good. Make sense? That's a Christian relationship. Thomas Schreiner, who's a uh, New Testament scholar, professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I very much hope to one day have a class from him in the near future, says, pleasing others to advance their selfish interests is excluded. Pleasing others so that they will be stronger in the faith, however, is a beautiful quality. So this is Paul's command to us. We put ourselves below the other person. We put them ahead of ourselves we live to please them. In, in other words, to do them some spiritual good. And so Paul gives us a reason for this command in the next couple of verses. Verses 3 and 4. He says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. So why should we please others and not ourselves? Well, Paul says we ought to do that because that's the example that Christ set for us. That, 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 that the King of Kings chose to be born in a stable for us. That the Lord of all became the servant and gave up his life as a ransom for us, that, that he did that for us, to please us, not in a way that makes us God, in a way that glorifies God, that, that Christ set that example by doing that, that the author of all life gave up his life on that cross. And so this is the Savior that we follow, and so if his life was characterized by this kind of selflessness, by this kind of sacrifice, 
then every time that we put ourselves first, we are behaving and thinking in a way that is distinctly unchristlike, unchristian. Christian means Christ follower. We are behaving in a way that is not like Jesus. Now, now we don't imitate Christ. We don't look at Christ as our great example and go, you know, some of the, the liberal denominations or even just general, we don't even claim to be Christian. They say Jesus was a great man and, and he came to earth to set an example for us to follow. That is one of the things that Jesus did. It's one on a list of things to be our example. So we don't follow Christ in example in a way that we read our Bible and we see something that Jesus did and we go, I'm going to do that because I'm like Jesus. But, but Christ is our great example and we ought to be looking to him, to things like this kind of sacrifice that he made and say, all the ways that I'm not doing in, that, in my life are ways that I look nothing like him. Right? And so, so Paul even says that elsewhere in Philippians. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, uh, that he set his glory aside. And so that is the call as Christians. And so Paul says we ought to, to put others first because that's what Christ did. And so Paul supports this reasoning from Psalm 69 and then applying this quote to Christ where it says here, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So that's a little bit confusing uh, on its own. And maybe you read across that and, and it's a little bit confusing. What does that even mean? Why, why is that fit in here? How is this the reasoning for what we ought to do? But what Paul's saying is this. Christ, the ruler of the universe, became shamed for us. The cross was a place of shame. It was a place of curse. It was a place of humiliation. And Christ joyfully went to the cross for his people and, and took its, his, its shame upon himself. That's what that means. The reproach fell on me. And so Paul here is addressing, I think not accidentally, an idea that is huge in the ancient Near Eastern culture, which is the idea of honor and the idea of shame. Honor and shame were the greatest currency in that culture. Uh, in fact, if you were wealthy, the point of being wealthy is so that you'd have honor. It, it was not a matter of uh, just richness for rich sake. It was all about honor. So if you were wealthy and shamed, that was no good to you. Shame was something to be avoided at all costs. Honor was the thing you sought. And so Paul calls attention again to the fact that Christ became shame for us. And the reason is that we've got these two groups. We've got the Jews and we've got the Gentiles, and both of them are a little bit ashamed of the other one. The Gentiles are not impressed by the Jews. The Jews are sort of worthless, less than us. The Gentiles are ashamed of the Jews. Even the Gentile Christians then, looking at the Jewish Christians, those who had weaker faith are a little bit ashamed of that. They're still observing all of these days. They're still doing all of these things. Don't they know? And then at the same time, the Jews are coming from this perspective of we are and have been God's chosen people. You're being grafted into the bush that we're a part of. You're not quite there. You're not quite there with us. And we know this was going on in the New Testament because Paul tells us elsewhere that he once had to confront Peter publicly for kind of allowing this separation between the Gentiles and the Jews to go on. So this is a huge issue 
in the New Testament church, and it's going on here in Rome, and there's sort of this mutual shame of the other group. And Paul reminds them, Christ became shame for us. We ought to bear one another's shame as well. God has called us to unity anyway. Are you a little bit ashamed of your brother's behavior? Christ has called us to unity anyway. And so God is doing this radical work in the New Testament church of calling people together who would have nothing to do with each other except for Christ. And then he's uniting them as brothers and sisters. As we're united to Christ, we're united to one another. And so Paul calls them to this radical unity. And then he adds this statement about the whole Old Testament in general. In verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So the Old Testament, all of it, was written for our instruction. That through endurance, that through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So why was the Old Testament written? The Old Testament was written so that you might have hope. That's encouraging when you read parts of the Old Testament that are kind of a bummer. Right? Numbers, for instance. Leviticus. Throwing those out. Lamentations is a bit of a downer. Right? Or you read about these things that people have a hard time reconciling where God tells Israel, here's what you need to do to this other nation. You need to wipe them out. Men, women, children, animals, everything dies. And we go, what is going on? Well, here's what Paul says. All of that was written for your instruction, ultimately, that you might have hope. So how does that work? How does that work? Well, the Old Testament promised a Messiah who would come and deal with the sins of God's people. See, the Bible takes sin very seriously. The Old Testament in particular. So when you're reading those books like Leviticus, and there's all these laws and all these regulations and all these things you go with, the big idea is God takes sin very seriously. And so... The Old Testament is promising this one who's going to come that's going to deal with the sins of God's people. It promises a king who's going to sit on the throne forever. These promises are fulfilled in Christ. So when we read the Old Testament, we have hope that this God who makes promises throughout all of this Old Testament history is actually the God who has fulfilled all of those promises in Christ. We can trace all of that all the way through. There's no other book that does this that makes these promises, that makes these prophecies of things that are going to happen way out in advance and then they all happen. That we can read the Old Testament and we can know that God keeps his promises. That's important because it's not just history, it's our future too. God has kept his promises, so God will keep his promises to me. And God has made some incredible promises to us in his word. Not the least of which is that by these promises, we become participants in his holy nature. We have oneness with God, and we can count on God to keep that promise. We have a promise of eternal life if we're God's sons and daughters, and we can count on God to keep that promise. So the Old Testament reminds us that God has been in control of history from start to finish. It's his story. He's written it. He's known the end from the beginning. He's been watching over his word to perform it, and he will in no way let anything slip through the cracks, and we're a part of that story, and so that gives us hope. 
That's what Paul's saying. That's our approach to the Old Testament. And so as we live our lives for the edification of one another, as Christ our Savior did, we have a sure and steady hope in the Word of God. Now Paul offers a prayer here in in light of this command and this reasoning in verses 5 and 6. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I love this, that Paul has just told us that the Old Testament produces hope in us through endurance, through the encouragement of Scripture. And then his next words in this prayer are, may the God, may the God of endurance and encouragement See, these are the things that God supplies because they are in his nature. It's who God is. And so this, again, becomes another promise wrapped up in all of those promises for us. This is who God is. God will give you Christian endurance. He will see you through. You won't grow weary and fall away. God will give you the encouragement that comes that will produce a hope in you. He says, may that God grant you to live in harmony. And so now Paul has made this command to love one another and not to please ourselves. But here in this prayer we see this. Paul knows that true unity only comes as a gift from God. So he commands us, have unity, and then he says, may God grant you that unity. Unity is not a place that we achieve. It's not something we arrive at. It's a gift that God gives his people. Because we're united to Christ, he has and will unite us with each other. And so we are responsible to work for it, but we need to continually look to God to grant it. That ought to be our posture. We work for unity and we pray God grant unity. Paul prays then that we would have such unity that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean, with one voice to glorify God? Does it mean we have to agree on everything? If we're good Christians, we will always agree on everything. If we are really, the Holy Spirit is really in us, we will always agree. We will never disagree. That's clearly not what's being said in light of chapter 4, where he says, bear with one another, right? Where he tells the strong, exercise your freedom in a way that's not trampling on the weak. He knows we're not going to agree about things, Especially non-essential issues, right? So, so to be a member of our church, we have a list of uh, core, core affirmations. If you don't affirm all of these things, you can't be a member. Why? Because they're not non-essential issues. They're essential issues. Jesus is both God and man. Jesus lived a sinless life, died on the cross. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus rose from the grave. There are these things that we say, well, we can't have unity if we disagree on these things. There's a whole list of other things, right? There's a whole list of other things that that we don't necessarily see eye to eye on. And and in spite of these differences, we can still be unified in our service and praise to God. As a church, Eden Worship Center can glorify God with one voice in spite of differences. Because we have unity over the essential things and we have unity... In Christ. And so if we're united in the essentials, that unity is going to overshadow any difference we have over trivial matters. That's what it means. So I can love you even if you're not a fan of the San Francisco Giants. Even if you're a fan 
of the Dodgers. I can love you. Don't tell me today because I am sick and I will breathe on you. Okay? Because you need to spend some time reflecting on the choices you're making. We don't hate people, but we hate institutions. Evil institutions. Dodgers are one of them. Okay. Guys, it is what it is. Okay? There's no reason to sabotage my sermon like that, but I have a fever. That's, that's what I'm going to every time now. I've got a fever. So this unity we have in the essentials, it will overshadow our differences in the non-essentials. And as we said before, the glory of God is directly connected to this unity. It's not a, it would sure be nice if we had it. It's an essential for the church. Without it, we are preaching a false gospel to the world. Paul wants the glory of God to be evident in the church in Rome and in our church in Honeyville. And so he prays for their and our unity. So now the second command, reason in prayer, we see in verses 7 through 13. The second command here is found in, in the first half of verse 7. It says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Okay, so in light of what I've just said, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. So the first command was directed to the strong in faith, right? Consider others more highly than yourselves. Paul directs this one to the strong and the weak. He says, all of you welcome one another. So Paul is commanding this mutual acceptance of one another. The stronger to welcome the weak, the weaker to welcome the strong. And this involves more than just toleration in the church. Paul means true love and acceptance of one another. See, in the church, it's not quite like it is elsewhere in the world. Maybe, maybe you work in a business and you have those people you have to deal with and you tolerate them. Right? I will not ever punch you in the throat. I will not call you names. However, I will not invite you to my house for lunch. And I hope to not spend any extra time with you. Uh, and, and so it's sort of that prayer for them God bless you and keep you far away from me. Right? <laughs> I want good for you. I used to be in college and had this woman that sat behind me for like a year. And my prayer, at least once a week, was God. If this rapture thing's for real, this would be a great time to take this sister home. Because that's not really even mean. You're praying for her to be with Jesus. Just be taken up. No, but as Christians, we don't merely tolerate one another. We love one another. We love each other in a way that goes beyond mere toleration. We, we truly accept one another. Such acceptance is foreign to the unbelieving world, and unfortunately, it's foreign in much of the church. But it should not be so. We should, even in light of our differences, accept and welcome one another. One of the most heartbreaking things is, is how often in the church, uh, the church is so splintered and segregated. Now, I'm not talking about denominations. I think it's good for us to identify people who, who line up with us on a lot of theological issues and say, I think we can do more together than we can spread apart. But, but I am talking about uh, the fact that we have white churches and black churches, that, that we feel a need to, to separate over all kinds of different issues. 
Um, you'll even see churches who meet in the same building, but one room they have contemporary music and one room they don't. Uh, it's this kind of splintering that's not necessary for us to do. That, that truly we love and accept one another and we glorify God with one voice. So what reason does Paul give us for this acceptance? This acceptance that, that takes place among God's people that's so rare out in, in the world. Verses, the second half of verse 7, we'll continue on. Well, let's just read from the start of verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So we should accept one another because we have been accepted by Christ. Christ has accepted us with all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our weakness. And if Christ has done that, then who are we to not accept one another? The gospel should inform our view of one another. It should inform the grace that we extend to one another. When we remember who we were, when Christ saved us, how unworthy we were, it becomes a lot more difficult for us to judge our brother and sister, doesn't it? If Christ has welcomed us into his family and called us his brothers and sisters, then we surely can do the same with one another. Now, as we noted here, as we went through chapter 14, we've even talked about it this morning, the weak are probably made up of mostly Jewish believers and the strong are mostly Gentile. And Paul here reminds these groups that Christ came for both of them. Christ came for both of them. He came to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, all right? This is speaking to the Jewish people, the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God gave them all these promises about the nation that he would build through them. Christ came to confirm all of those promises, that their descendants would be blessed by the Lord. That, that this blessing that was promised to the patriarchs was ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so it demonstrates God's faithfulness to his promise to the circumcised. That's the Jewish people, the circumcised. God's faithfulness to his promise is demonstrating in Christ. Yet, Paul goes on to say, God also promised that the nations would be blessed through Abraham. That it's not just the circumcised, it's not just the Jewish people who would be blessed through Abraham, it's the whole world would be blessed through Abraham, and Christ fulfills that promise as well. So he fulfills the promise to the Jews, he fulfills the promise to the Gentiles, which is just basically anybody who's not a Jew. The whole world. For those of us in the room, it's, it's probably maybe all of us. Um, that The whole world, other than the nation of Israel, that promise is also fulfilled in Christ. So by his coming in the flesh and dying on the cross for our sins, Christ not only blessed the Jews, but he also made a way for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. He, he is the one who flung the doors open, this new covenant that brings all of us into the fold. Christ did. So he came for the Jews and the Gentiles. Now Paul, Paul supports this with four Old Testament quotes here. Second half of verse 9 through verse 12. He says, that is, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul does this amazing thing here where he reminds them that the plan to save the Gentiles was always plan A. It wasn't that, well, Jewish people, you know, you were unfaithful. And so since you were unfaithful, the Gentiles got to come in. So the Jewish people are kind of looking, going, yeah, if our ancestors hadn't blown it, you guys wouldn't even be here, right? And the Gentiles are looking, going, if you hadn't blown it, we wouldn't even be here. Well, the truth is, Paul shows from the Old Testament, no, this has always been God's plan to bring the Gentiles in. It was always the plan. God always had the plan. Again, God has made promises throughout history that he has always fulfilled. He has always had a plan. His plan has never been changed. His plan has never been thwarted. His plan has never been compromised. There's been one plan from before the foundations of the earth, and that plan has gone off without a hitch. And so Paul is arguing that since Christ came then to serve both the Jews, that's the weak, and the Gentiles, the strong, they should be willing to serve one another in love and welcome one another. Whatever our differences are over non-essentials, we too should love and welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is showing that Christ has come equally for all believers. All of us. I I can't look at at one of you and go, well, when Christ, you know, walked this earth and went on that cross, he probably had dad in mind more than he did me because a lot better person than I am. It's not how it works. Christ came equally for all believers to bring us all to himself. And so, in light of that hope we have in Christ, Paul offers this second prayer here in verse 13. Such a powerful prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I'm sorry, I know I hate hearing people drink in a microphone. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This benediction here, this prayer that Paul prays is really a summation of all of Romans. It's all tied up in this prayer that, that, that Paul prays. Everything is sort of wrapped up in this. It's a prayer that the God of hope, the God who's the source of eternal hope, the God who's the source of eternal life, who's the source of eternal salvation, would fill you up, leaving nothing out. Literally, to overflow you with joy and peace that comes from believing that God's Spirit lives in you in power. This is Paul's prayer for you. This is Paul's prayer for the Roman Christians, but it's Paul's prayer for Christians. That God would do this, that God's Spirit would come to you in power and overflow you with joy and peace. In other words, may you get all that there is to get. All the joy. All the peace. All the hope that can possibly be given to you through believing in Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. That's Paul's prayer for you. So Paul's prayer is this. May you be totally spiritually satisfied. That doesn't mean that we have goosebumps all the time. 
that every time we open up our Bible, we're just filled with goosebumps and, and we can't contain ourselves, that when we gather together on a Sunday morning, glory dust falls from the ceiling. That's not what it means to be totally spiritually satisfied. It doesn't mean we get everything we demand from God. That's not what it means. It means that we'd be filled with joy, that we would be filled with peace, that we would be filled with hope to overflowing, because that's what salvation was intended to bring. And so when we talk about being filled with joy, being filled with peace, being filled with hope to overflowing, we have a tendency to think about the wrong things when we think about those. We don't think in biblical terms about what that means, those words. We hear be filled with joy and we think be filled with happiness, don't we? We tend to think of joy and happiness as the same thing. They're not the same thing. Happiness is very fleeting. If you're a person like me, your happiness can be robbed from you in a second and you don't even know why. I always say I have a, a, a hair trigger depression switch in me for some reason. And it can be literally anything and I'm just blown out. I'm just in despair. All of a sudden I'm Eeyore. I was on top of the world and now woe is me. Happiness is a fleeting thing. We don't know why it leaves us. We don't know how long it's going to last. Joy is not like that. Joy is eternal. Joy is forever. Joy comes from confidence in something. It's the same with hope. It's the same with peace. It doesn't mean that there aren't times of trial and struggle and even depression. We see it in Jesus. We see it in the Apostle Paul. We see that truly spiritual, plugged-in, turned-on people can go through times of intense suffering, intense trial, even depression, and they have not sinned in that. It doesn't mean that we are giddy, clicking our heels on the mountaintop all the time. It means that we have a confidence in us that the God who keeps His promises will keep His promises. And so God's working for your eternal joy. Forever. Now, I do believe this, Christian, from the moment you die, you will be in eternal blissful happiness forever. See, there's no crying in heaven. There's no mourning in heaven. None of that. Every tear will be wiped away from your eye. In this world, you'll have trouble. But it comes from this promise, even as we read in the Old Testament, that God has counted every time in your bed you've tossed and turned, that God has kept your tears in a bottle, that God is utterly concerned with these things. He will see you through. The thing you're going through has not thwarted God's plan, because we can read the Old Testament, Paul says. See, God's plans have never been put off track, that God was in control, that God is in control, and Paul's already told us in the book of Romans that God is causing all things on purpose to work for the good of those who love him who are called. That means Christians. That for the good of Christians, God has intentionally caused all things to work for your good. There's nothing that happened to you by accident. And you may have had unimaginably horrible things, and you're saying, are you blaming God for that? I'm saying, no, there was purpose behind it, and you may not have thought that. It was for your good. What is 80 years of suffering compared to eternal bliss? Our perspective is off. C.S. Lewis says, when we get to heaven, we won't figure out what, what was going on behind all the problems. We'll figure out there never was a problem. 
That's what it means to trust God. That's what it means to be filled with joy and hope and peace. It means in the midst of trial, even in the midst of depression, our soul cries out to God and says, God, you are my deliverer. You will deliver me. And we plead with God to deliver us in the way that that we want right in the moment. And we pray like Jesus, nevertheless, let your will be done because it's better. Your plan is better. Your way is better. It's for my good. It's for your glory. And that means it's for my joy. It's better. That's what it means to be filled to overflowing. It means that when we are squeezed, that's what comes out of us. That's what bleeds out of us. Hope, joy, peace. Not some kind of lame happiness. Something deep. Something that lasts. That's what salvation brings in a Christian. That's the work that it does. So this prayer Paul prays for a satisfied soul sweeps back through this whole epistle, through all of Romans. May you know forgiveness. May you know peace. May you know hope. May you know love. May you know victory over sin. May you know the power of the Spirit of God. May you know the obedience of a spiritual life. May you know the use of your spiritual gift. May you know a right relationship with people, even a right relationship with your government. May you know a sense of urgency as you live in a Christian, as a Christian in days that are evil, in a world that is against you, as time is running out, as your life is but a breath. May you know that urgency. May you know how to care for one another, even when you have differences. May you know all that God could possibly overflow in you in the power of the Spirit, and thus be a fully satisfied believer, having full confidence of our salvation. That's what it means to abound in hope. It means if God's got me, there's no getting out. I will not be ripped from his hand. I won't even jump. He's got me. He's got me. That's what it means to abound in hope, to be a fully satisfied believer. It's an unshakable confidence in our salvation. Worship team, if you want to make your way up here. See, God does value his glory above all else. He does. And maybe you're even in here this morning and you hear me say that and you haven't been around, so you go, well, I don't like that. I don't think that's right. Uh, I, I would just put it to you like this. If God's glory is the most infinite and glorious thing in all of the universe, I think we'd all agree on that, then God must value it or else God doesn't value the most infinite thing as the most infinite thing. He has to. It's a pretty simple equation here. God does value it, and we're glad that God values it because of this. God has wrapped his glory up in his people's satisfaction in Christ. Here's why this is incredible good news, that God values his glory even above how much he values you because here's how much he loves you. He wrapped you up in that. So Christian, whether you make it to heaven, that's wrapped up in God's glory. And God cares more about his glory than anything. He says, my glory I will not give to another. And he has loved you so much that he wrapped you up in that. So now what happens with you is a reflection on God's glory. And God will never compromise his glory. That's great news. That's incredible news. So we should always be filled with hope, Christians. We should always be filled with hope because God will always uphold his glory. 
If God will always uphold his glory and he's chosen to wrap me up in that, how could I have anything but hope? This is the thing to God. And if God is infinitely powerful, and we know he is, and this is the most important thing to him, there's zero chance of things slipping through the cracks. This is incredible news. We should be filled with hope. And part of God upholding his glory is this. It's our being saved, Christian. Our actually making it. Are actually making it to heaven. God actually completing the good work he began in you is wrapped up in this glory that he is always working to uphold. And so Paul's prayer for us, this benediction, as he sort of wraps all of everything he said so far in 15 and a half chapters in Romans, he wraps it up into this prayer that we'd be fully satisfied in Christ. That should be our prayer as well. It's a godly prayer. It's not a selfish prayer. It's a godly prayer. God, make me fully satisfied in you. Satisfied in you so I don't chase after distractions. Satisfied in you so I don't look for satisfaction in other places. Satisfied in you so I don't take good things you've given me in life and elevate them to God things and they become idols in my life. Satisfied in you so I always see as infinitely valuable that which actually is infinitely valuable so that everything I do proceeds from this faith that you've placed in my heart so that everything I do, I do for your glory. God, let me be satisfied in you that we might lack nothing that Jesus Christ has purchased for us. It's a godly prayer. So that God would be glorified in us and God will be glorified through us. Our lives will magnify and put on display God's glory. That ought to be our heart's cry as Christians. That's my prayer this morning. Let's stand up together. Even as I was preparing for this sermon and I sort of prepared it with a fever this week, not feeling great, not, not, not feeling really encouraged about any of it until I got to the last verse. And I said, well, that's the deal, isn't it? My life can put God's glory on display whether I feel good or not, whether I sound smart or not, whether I sound like I've got things together or not. My life can put God's glory on display if I'm satisfied in Christ. And that became my prayer. God, make me fully satisfied in you. I would just invite you, pray that prayer with me this morning. God, here we stand as your people. Lord, I pray you'd show us your glory. Lord, lift high our Savior, Jesus Christ, before our eyes. Let us see your goodness. Let us be satisfied in you. Let us see you as you are. God, when we see you, when you open our eyes to see you, you're so irresistible. You're so so immensely glorious and good. Lord, we don't have words to describe how good you are, how glorious you are, how amazing you are. You are holy. You are completely separate and other than anything our minds can comprehend. And so God, God, it's our prayer that you would change us from one degree of glory to the next, transforming us into your image Lord, that we would see you, that we would savor you, that we would be satisfied in you. You would be our treasure and we'd never settle for any other. That you'd even give us eyes to see the lies behind all other treasures. Lord, we're your people. 
I just want to invite you this morning, if you're in this place and you're not a Christian, if that's not your posture towards God, I want to invite you this morning because the offer is on the table. This hope that Paul talks about, that can be your hope. There's nothing I can do to talk you into it. There's nothing I can do to win you over. This is God's Holy Spirit's work in your life. But if you're feeling conviction right now, then today's your day of salvation. You wouldn't feel that conviction if God wasn't drawing you to himself. And I just plead with you, surrender to him. Jesus is calling you if you feel that draw towards him. I would plead with you, surrender your life. Say, God, be my treasure. I've traced after other things. I've looked to other things. I've tried to find salvation in other places. I've lived for myself. God, come take all of me. Let that forgiveness of sins that was talked about this morning, let that be applied to me. Let that righteousness of Christ be transferred to me. God, save me. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Adopt me into your family. I can't force you to do that. Nobody is interested in turning your arm and getting you to pray some kind of prayer that you don't even mean, but I would plead with you. Surrender to the one who owns you.